What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 163 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I sat down with Alistair Neal from the Friday Meeting Podcast, a podcast that takes the weekly news events and satires them in a really hilarious way. Him and his three cohorts sit around just making jokes about what's been happening in the news the last week and trying to show everyone the lighter side of life. Today's episode is really cool because he didn't really have an agenda. We just went back and forth, had a great conversation about life, about lifestyle design, about the travels that we've had, and the impact that it's had on us. So definitely check out his podcast, Friday Meeting Podcast. Again, if you just want to have a chuckle and a laugh at recent current events. If you're a first-time listener, please pull up that phone and hit the subscribe button. If you like Misfits and Rejects, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with a friend. Just shared the link, sent it to somebody that you thought might enjoy Misfits and Rejects. Trying to spread the, uh, the good word of inspirational lifestyle design is what this is all about. And I would really appreciate it if you did think this was a good message that was worthwhile sharing that you chose one friend to send it to. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Alistair Neal. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I'm joined by Alistair Neal, a friend of mine who does the Friday Meeting podcast. Chatted the other night, really connected with, one, the space that you use to host your podcast, and then two, just as we got going, like some of the, the, the life stories you told me, and just even though you claim you're not designing your life, I, I disagree. But uh, we can get a little deeper on that in a second. All right. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is cool. So as a podcaster, I mean, what are the, the biggest hurdles that you've had to overcome? Um, finding an audience. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, because there's no shortage of podcasts out there. So you have to differentiate yourself, um, be interesting, kind of uh, learn your craft, so to speak, to generate um, you know, listeners. Like I look at kind of like, like music, right? When you first start off playing the violin, you suck. But if you do it for a long enough time, eventually people come to your concert. Right. So, and then, I mean, are you active look actively looking for people to follow you, like through social media? Like, how are you marketing this? Are you just hoping people stumble upon you? Yeah, we're hoping people stumble along. Um, word of mouth, you know, the classic tell a friend. If you like, if you like our show, tell a friend. Hopefully, they'll tell a friend as well. Just do you, do you say that within your intro and outro, like tell a friend? We have started doing it recently. Yeah, but uh, the first couple, like for the first hour, we've got thirty-eight episodes now for the first. 20 or 30 we just wanted to do it and just kind of told a couple of people about it because it's not a, a product that you're totally stoked on as an individual until you get to a certain point where you're like okay we got this dialed in there's we actually have some content that's that's relevant we got our jokes better in line we get to know each other a little better so yeah just so the audience understands what the podcast is about can you describe it to them yeah it's uh it's called the friday meeting so it came from an old company where we'd all get together on a friday and people just kind of organically evolved into kind of a, a small event so we want to do a podcast to recreate that where we have little bits. Um, we take a look at the news articles of the week. They're a little bit interesting, a little bit different and put our little, little spin and little jokes around them. And so I know just because we've talked pre-show, you're aspiring comedian to a certain extent. I mean, you, you like the craft you've been up on, you've done some stand up and whatnot. Are your um, counterparts within the epi- or the podcast? Uh, are they also aspiring comedians? They, they are not, they bring different elements, right? So there's, there's a contrast in that group. Um, and <clears throat> one of them is kind of a more serious, uh, 
business professional, you know, he's like sold bot. I'm sorry. He's created and sold software companies. And the other one's, uh, she's like a Bravo fan. Uh, <laughs> that was real life. So like Bravo's real- like what Hollywood stuff. Yeah, it's like the reality TV and, okay. and that side of things. So. Okay, so you sit around, you pick a few uh, current events from the week, and then you have your Friday meeting, and yep. you just sit there and you, what like what did you just say last week? You talked about what the biggest cock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a deep dive into the uh, the actual world's largest penis, which uh, as it turns out is is quite large. How big is it? Uh, uh, it's about like fourteen inches. Wow. I don't. We we never did determine if that was flaccid or erect. Okay. But does it, I think at that size, does it really matter? Okay. <laughs> and as stereotypes go, what, um, you like, know, we didn't, we didn't bring race into it. Okay. Good yeah. for you. Yeah. Probably yeah. would have done a shut down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we all know what the answer is. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so yeah, as, as far as, you know, with your audience followers, are you getting good feedback? Um, we get some hearts on occasion. Ooh, you know, heart. Yeah, no, hearts. no reviews. Nobody. Do you have trolls? I guess that's another indicator if you're doing something positive. I think trolls, even though they hate on you, that at least they're paying attention. Yeah, right. Like at least at least they listen to it enough to hate on it. That'd be great. I'd love to have some trolls. Yeah, we're you building so a you bridge. We're building a bridge. Come on, <laughs> trolls. <laughs> we're making a place for you to live. Yeah. And so, how long does it last? Uh, between thirty and forty minutes. Every Friday, you're here committed, and you make no money on it. No money yet. Yeah, okay. But one thing that was intriguing to me and why, why I invited you on the show too is this space that you have, which is a model that I was just re or introduced to through a mutual friend of ours, Josh Kennedy, the Overcoming Podcast. And when I approached you about it, like, oh, come on the show and talk about it, you're like, there's nothing to say. There's nothing to talk about. <laughs> I was like, I disagree. Like, let's just give the audience a little bit of a, a clue into like what I'm talking about, which we're in a space, in a building, like a WeWork style building, office yeah. building that you've, offices. that you've outfitted to do podcasting. Yeah. Period. Like no one's coming in here to sing. No one's coming in here to record anything other than a podcast, right? Yeah. And theoretically, I don't know if you do or not, you could rent this space out to somebody. Yeah, we've, we've taken the... And then when I say we, I'm, this is not my baby. It's my, my business partner's baby. But he basically wanted to do a podcast. And he took the, if we build it, people will come approach. And um, so we got this nice little room. We've got some soundproofing. We've got some mics, little table, nearby fridge for the beers. And uh, we just said, like, if you want to have a membership, it's 100 bucks a month. Come use it whenever you want. And how many memberships do you have? Uh, you want to buy a membership? <laughs> before, you, before you get back on your travels? Uh, we got a couple people that use it. There's a guy that does like a a jump coaching podcast. He's the, he's the coach of what's the NBA uh, scoring dude, James Harden. So okay. he like teaches people how to jump higher on they, a podcast. Oh, uh, I actually haven't listened to his podcast. <laughs> I don't feel the need to increase my vertical leap for any reason. I've accepted the fact that I can no longer dunk. Um, and then there's the Josh does his podcast in here, a couple of people. So that's really cool. So yeah, what intrigued me by it is that I'm finding out it's more of a competitive market than I realized. I mean, mm-hmm. Josh also introduced me to another space that seems to be booked all day, every day. And they have like, um, yeah, NBA players coming in and, and very notable people with their podcast here in Newport Beach, California doing their podcast. And they're like, this is how they make their money, which was just like mind blowing to me that podcasting is that big. So I know this isn't your baby, but since you are involved in it, like, could you see this space kind of growing into something like that where you push it a little harder or is this just for you? And I think it's, yeah, it's more like a, like a pet project. Like, Hey, we got the space. We bought some microphones. If we rent it out, like, cause it's not wildly expensive, right? The monthly rent from this place isn't that bad. It's, you know, it's a small room that they couldn't rent to anybody else. Um, you get a couple of people in here, you know, seven or eight that just have a regular thing. Then suddenly it pays for itself. And it's not like the, ex- the equipment is wildly expensive if you share that cost amongst groups. So maybe think of it as like a hippie communal, podcast studio 
you know, everybody come in, use it, kick a little bit of money. And then no, that's benefit. Cool. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to the businesses that are like, yeah, you got to come pay this amount of rent. And you know, and you look at the cost per hour. It's like, I could have bought my own studio for that mm-hmm. after a couple hours of recording. So, mm-hmm. so what do you do to make money? Like how, what is your nine to five at this point? Um, I work for a recruitment marketing company. So if you're looking for people, we do your advertising. Okay. So a lot of Facebook ads, a lot of indeed career builder monster type stuff. But that's kind of like, I mean, that's what pays the bills, but I know you have side hustles as well. Correct. I mean, you have the uh, podcast, and then you have the the comedy. But is there was there is there anything else that you're aspiring to do to kind of like design your life more in, in in a way that you have complete control over it? No, I think that I think the, the the designing of the life aspect comes into because I'm a part owner of the business. If we can get the business to the point where it's making proper money. Oh, okay, you are part owner. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. So I'm I'm, uh, I'm part owner. So we want to get to the business to a place where like it's just on cruise control, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then that way it'll be out of time. Cause at the end of the day, time is more valuable than money. But if you have lots of time and no money, it makes it a little trickier to, to do the things that I like to do. Totally. Yeah. Is building businesses one of them? Um, do you enjoy that aspect of what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the, I like the pressure, I like the, the control, so to speak. Um, but also with that control comes the, the nervousness side of things, right? Am I making the right decision? Like it all comes back to you. So I think I do kind of enjoy that, uh, pressure. How many businesses have you built in zero? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is the first one. Fair enough. That's cool. Anybody in your family entrepreneurial? Um, not really. No, my dad has worked at the same company since he graduated from college. Okay. Fair (laughs) enough. I mean, yeah, this is kind of like, this is a new sort of popular way of a trendy thing to become. I think, yeah. A lot of us, myself included, might be weeded out at some point, you know, like I'm doing it for that kind of lifestyle design thing where I'm really trying to design my life around the things I want and need income that I can generate anywhere in the world. Hence mm-hmm. the reason I try to do this online entrepreneurship. Um, I've always believed that entrepreneurs were just kind of born entrepreneurs. I know a lot of people argue with me on that, but like, I don't think I'm an entrepreneur, dude. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm why, try- is, why is that? I just, there's not an aspect of what I'm doing right now that I get super hungry for, except for the motivation to get the lifestyle out of it that I want. Isn't that what drives a lot of entrepreneurs is the freedom, the the ownership, the, you know, the, I think that's maybe part of it for some, but I've kind of boiled it down to a few different categories of people. You got the men and women who just love building businesses. doesn't matter what the product is. There's men and women who love the money. The thought yeah. of just making the millions to billions of dollars, like that's driving factor. And then there's a people who the combination feeds both of them. And those were kind of just the three that I've always kind of said were like, oh, those are just natural entrepreneurs. Like they can do anything. It doesn't really matter where it's like I have to really put my focus and attention to something that I care about. Mm-hmm. Even though the ultimate goal is to kind of make money, passive income to then feed my lifestyle on the beach in Nicaragua or where it might be. But um, I just, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think people do have their, their different motivations. Mine is the time, right? Like most of the things I like to do are f- fairly expensive. I mean, even just, just plane tickets are expensive, right? At the end of the day, they're pretty expensive. Um, and so I'm trying to get to the point where actually this is my business partner talking about. is like, get to the business point where it's like, you take three months off. I'll take care of it. I'll run CEO while you're gone. And then guess what? I'm gone for three months. And in the meantime, you know, you still have business income. Yeah. It's kind of the, the dream. Yeah. I brought a um, gentleman on very smart gentleman who said anybody who wants to create time by owning their own business is an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah. you have a you are you basically just bought a job or created a job for yourself. I mean, obviously, those who read and read these business books say like, well, you're trying to create systems, so you have to be there and everything like that. But like, at least the first five ten years, like, unless you're lucky, you're very good at this. Like, yeah. you are going to be working your balls off and probably fail. <laughs> yep, most of them do. So the skill set that you brought into the company that you partnered with, what, what's your skill set? What makes you good at what you do? Um, <laughs> well. Nothing. <laughs> um, I have a general knowledge about. It. I spend a lot of time in the recruitment marketing software world, so I've just I've got a lot of relationships and contacts, and just a general overall knowledge of um, the recruitment marketing landscape. But no knowledge of software. Um, I did take coding colleges in class. I'm sorry, coding class. One more time, <laughs> coding classes in college. Say that three times fast. Coding classes in college. Um, so I have a gist of how it works. I just I would rather shoot myself with a face and program. Fair enough. When you do describe like the future, if you take the business for three months, I'll take the business for three months. What does that look like for you? Like, where are you going? Are you going to travel? Or are you going to like sit here and work on another project? No, I've got a list. I've got a list of places that I want to. So it's traveling that's motivating oh, you. Traveling, yeah. Name a few. <clears throat> um, I would like to go to Iceland. I'd like to see the Northern Lights. Uh, I would like to heli ski in New Zealand. I would like to do a jeep trip across Africa. Never been to Africa. I'd like to go to Everest Base Camp. Like I'm not real unrealistic enough to, to I'm going to go climb Everest, but I'd like to get up to Everest Base Camp. I think that'd be a cool place to go and just see Nepal in general. Um, I would like to step foot on Antarctica. I think that'd be cool to, to be on the southern, see some penguins, eat a little yeah. penguin, eat some penguin meat. Can you? Penguins. Can you eat? I don't actually know. <laughs> sure, you could. Like it can't. It's not. I would imagine it's not poisonous. I'm sure they're protected, or maybe they're just super hard to get to. Yeah, that it tastes like shit. Like. You know, I hear seagulls taste terrible because they're just eating all that fish. That's like, it's not good for you. Not, not bad for you, but it's just like smelly, rotten. Like, yeah, but tuna, tuna fish eat fish. They're predators, and tuna fish is pretty, point. pretty good. That's a good point. Yeah, most of the delicious fish eat other fish. So, also chickens are delicious, and penguins like flightless birds as well as chickens. So, right. yeah, but chickens, their diets controlled. Like, I feel like wild game tastes very different. Like, I killed a few chickens in Nicaragua that were just roaming around eating bugs. Right. Right. And their meat was so sour and nasty. Really? And they, all local says because they eat bugs. If you have to control what they eat to make their meat taste right, or that taste the way that I'm used to it tasting. So then I think my plan is to start a penguin farm and feed the penguins the right <laughs> only <diet>. grain, <laughs> right diet, so they get a delicious penguin meat. That's cool. So yeah, now you, I got a dream. Now, now I'm an entrepreneur again. I'm going to start a penguin meat meat <laughs> meat sanctuary. Dude, that's a good idea. I'm sure yeah. that somebody would try to block you though from PETA. <laughs> I'm well. Uh, collect so their eggs let's up. see them try <laughs> so you're originally from new mexico and you were a ski bum a self-described ski bum which i understand your your lust for maybe everest base camp or antarctica yeah um did you ever try to take that seriously and become pro i, I did so I, I took i dropped out slash failed out of college um you know how when you know you're going to drop out, so you stop going to class, and then you technically technically fail out. But you're like, no, you didn't fire me. I quit. <laughs> um, yeah, I left and went to Crested Butte to, uh, to to try and get into the U.S. Extreme Skiing Championships. Try and didn't make it, or did not. No, because of why? Did you get hurt? Uh, I'm just not that good of a skier, and yeah, I, uh, I dinged my head pretty good a little bit beforehand. So mm. proper concussion. Mm. Like that lasted days. Like you're kind of out of it and weird, and like couldn't remember shit. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, my little brother was up visiting to ski with me, and after I cracked my cracked my skull, um, I told him how to go to work that day. He's like, "You don't have to go to work," and I just kept repeating, "Like, no, I've got to be at work at five. He's like, "No, no, no." We talked about this. I came to visit you. You have all the time off. You don't have to go to work at five. I was like, "No, I got to go to work at five. Like, just completely just gone. Just looped it. Your brain is just looping. I got to go to work. Yeah, 
So do you see how we're conditioned, dude? Even with brain injuries, like <laughs> somebody in the past told us we had to work every day. Yeah. So just so the audience can understand what extreme skiing is. Yeah. What is that? What do you do? Um, it's just like big mountain skiing. So you, you know, the, you have the disciplines, you have like your park pipe people, you have your mogul skiers, you have your racers that do the slalom courses and the giant slalom and extreme skiing. And now that it's changed to now big mountain skiing. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, it's just like big mountain stuff, cliffs, shoots, um, extreme stuff, but it's like mapped out. It's not like they're like, okay, we're going to put binoculars, sit here with binoculars and watch you go try to find these things. Yeah, they'll pick like a section of the mountain, right? So they'll say, okay, here's where you start. Here's the finish line. Have at it. Like you pick your own line. That's part of the thing you get judged on is the line that you take down the mountain. The gnarliest line kind of wins, and the, the things that you're doing off of these cliffs make it even cooler. Yeah. How fast you ride it, the, the lines you choose, the cliffs you drop, the tricks you do off the cliffs, that sort of thing. Are there big mountains in New Mexico? Is there are, big? actually. Really? Yeah. yeah. I didn't know this. New Mexico has the second highest ski resort in the nation, uh, Santa Fe. Right behind a basins, well over twelve, twelve thousand. Wow. So, okay, that's cool. Yeah, and Taos, Taos Ski Valley is always on the top, like five most extreme. Uh, <laughs> it's it's too bad that word became less cool. It's now got like a, it's got like a bad rep now, but it's always on like the three most extreme ski resorts list in America, behind Snowbird and uh, Do you ski or snowboard? Not in a long time. I did. I okay. snowboarded a okay. little bit. Last time I skied um, was in Germany about five years ago. And I had a girlfriend who was from this little village, a ski village, and she hadn't skied in a few years. And I was very arrogant of my abilities. And I was <laughs> like, listen, babe, I'm going to like probably have to leave you behind because I'd like to go fast. I hadn't been in the skis in like 25 years. Yeah. And uh, she's like, yeah, whatever, dude. Got up there and it was I was terrified. Like just even trying to turn was so weird because one leg wanted to go one way or the other. And I could ski a little bit when I was a kid. Yeah. And I'm athletic enough that I can – catch on pretty quick but this was actually like a very embarrassing moment where i was like wow and she's like all right see you later dude <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mr skier yeah good thing you opened your mouth beforehand that's uh, that always works out well oh i know what an idiot but yeah. um respect dude so you grew up how many days a year were you going into the um oh man so i'd, I'd ski every weekend possible so winter's what three months so that's 12 weekends so probably got 24 25 days a year on wow. average so yeah. yeah, but the the guys who were like that cut above were going every day, probably, huh? Yeah, or at least five days a week. And that was like with with modern day athletes, they're the kids that go to the camps, and then they go to the camp in the summer up in Mount Hood, and that's all they do. They go to that private school at Park City where they ski four hours a day, you know. So they're skiing hundreds of days a year in professional environments. That's that's the level of athlete that we have today. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not your casual kid that grew up in Vermont that suddenly became like a pro it's everything is from basically from birth now. Like you gotta be training the whole time. Yeah. No, it's an interesting phenomenon, especially in the sports that were such like fringe sports for so long, like the surfing, I guess, snowboarding as well, skiing right? where parents weren't pushing kids. Cause it was just a loser sport of burnouts. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's like, you're going to get up and go surfing. You have a coach on the beach filming you every day. And like, yeah. Uh, like look at Sean White. Sean White has his own half pipe, you know, he's not just down at the, the, local half pipe doing his thing is like he has his own half pipe his own foam pit and everything else and and uh, his nutrition coaches and all that other stuff right like it's a different game now than it used to be it totally is yeah i feel bad for some of the kids who like aren't really that passionate about snowboarding every day you know or surfing like mm -hmm. there's a pro i won't name him but yeah th there's talk of his dad like he would try to get out and his dad would be there and throw him back in the water like you're not getting out yet yeah like, get back out there 
those are my parents that are vicariously living through their kids. Totally. <laughs> like his dad was a big time pro, didn't ever make it as like, um, I'd say a world champion, but mm-hmm. he was notable. Like everyone knows who he is and just pushing his kid back. You get out there. Get this out. kid rips, this kid doesn't, but I have a feeling the kid probably has other passions. He might want to like explore. Yeah. But you, you described that when you did come to Cali, there's something that bit you like, now I'm become a surf bum. Was that what I understood? Yeah. Like, so was it a preconceived sort of like, I'm now cause the skiing didn't work out. I'm going to go to Cali and be a surf bum. No, I went, after the skiing didn't work out, I went back and finished school. And then I was after school, I was trying to figure out what to do. Um, so I was living in Utah teaching wakeboarding, um, teaching wakeboarding. I was trying to figure out what to do because the summer was ending and the lake's, you know, essentially closing. Um, they don't close the lake, but you know, the, <laughs> the tourists all go away. So you don't have anybody to teach. And I was like, what should I do? Um, I've never, I've touched the ocean once growing up, literally been in the ocean once. Um, not a lot of ocean in New Mexico. And so I was like, what's the other sport that people do? I should go learn what surfing is all about. See what the vibe is. Cause you know, there's no tennis bombs. There's no like, Oh, I'm a vol- I just I moved to Vermont to play volleyball, bro. That's all I do, you know. <laughs> so I wanted to see what the whole surfing thing was about. <clears throat> so just the idea of just – I mean this is kind of cool because you are somebody who's obviously interested in exploring these alternative sports, extreme sports, if you will. Yeah. Um, but yet you you kind of are designing your life to also be a businessman kind of in a cubicle. No offense. I don't know if you're in a cubicle I every totally day. totally am in a cubicle. <laughs> you know, and so you do have this lust for like action, adventure – you're trying to get back out and you know at least have chunks of time out yeah. in the world at these various places you described earlier um and that's cool why if you don't mind me asking have you just have you have you not just fully committed to that lifestyle and like pieced together in some way i think deep down inside it just not to be grotesque but i'm just kind of a pussy right okay. like i'm afraid i'm afraid to sell my shit and go go have that lifestyle i think i'd be think it'd be lonely mm. um i'd probably turn into an alcoholic Mm. Um, I'd miss my friends, I'd miss my family. Like, I don't want to have the stress of, cause my parents are all like, what if my mom needs something? Right. And I'm in fucking New Zealand. That's a big stress to get back. Then I don't think I'd, I'd want to, to leave them behind. So to speak. I hear you. I mean, I think that's a big stress for a lot of people who love their families and want to be a part of the day to day to a certain extent, or at least every month or however long a yeah. time you go without seeing your family, when to get back to them, I can speak from experience though. You know, yeah. being from here and then moving to Nicaragua for the time period in which I did, which is roughly like 10 years accumulated, right. um, getting that call that something's wrong with mom and coming home and getting to spend that period of time in which I did, which for me, I was lucky. It was a year. Yeah. The 10 years that I really didn't spend at home, that one year was sufficient. Like I don't have any guilt inside of me that yeah. I wasn't here like for every single moment. Yeah. Where I think that's a fear that holds a lot of people back. It's like, well, what if I miss this moment with mom, dad, siblings, cousins, nieces, nephews? You know, and fair enough. Like, if that's what your life is, like, you have to be a part of those those yeah. moments. But I think for any listener out there, even to you, like, the the time in which I was able to get home and spend because I was home within like twenty four hours, right? Yeah. And she lasted another nine months, and it was like, okay, that was. We had our we had our moments. We we set our peace, and then when she finally left the world, it was okay. Like I have no regrets. Yeah, because I lived my life so in, in in the way I wanted to for ten years. Where if I had sacrificed that ten years, anticipating that moment of like, well, if somebody dies in my family and I and I I'm not here, yeah. it's going to be devastating. I think I'd have more regret have living that way. You know. Yeah, I'm not talking about just just death, but just 
um, just seeing them on a regular basis. Fair enough. That sort of thing, you know? Yeah, no, I love my family and, you know, bonding with my niece and nephew not have been home for the last six months has been huge and something that I want to continue to participate in. So, I mean, since the bug bit me in like 98 and I was like, I vow I will never live in the States again. I still stand by that statement, but I also know that at this point in my life, I want to be coming back more frequently like this. I don't want to be home base. I want somewhere else to be home base, but with Mm -hmm. the kids growing up the way they do as fast as they do. And I want them and my face to like be recognizable to everybody. (laughs) I'll be coming back a lot more, and things change. Yeah, your you, your personality changes. Do you do you want a home base? No, not really. Yeah, your home base is your backpack, more or less. I guess that's not entirely true. I, I think for me and my passion for surfing, home base is where there's a consistent wave that I can access. Yeah. So for me, Nicaragua, with the years I spent there, it's it's convenient. I know it. It's it's just so familiar at this point, so I can see that being home base. Okay. Um, for how many months a year, I don't know. I mean, there's I love like you so many places i want to see and things i want to do and new adventures i want to have so do you get do you get bored riding the same wave yeah it's funny you ask that Why is i had funny? a long conversation with somebody about this recently where because in nicaragua the waves are really good right i'd almost venture to say borderline perfect a, a percentage of the year that's completely uncomparable to the rest of the world we have a very unique wind system in southern nicaragua that blows offshore most of the day nice so it's very it grooms the water face and like you have a very consistently good wave to pick from on a daily most months of the year is it crowded now it is yeah yeah Yeah, it's pretty crowded now um and but the years that i was there prior to it becoming as crowded as it is now you can imagine like the first two years i'd say confidently um i was consistently surfing by myself with my friends possibly with a handful of guests that were attending my surf camp our surf camp and i can honestly say a few of the waves i got bored with (laughs) i was surfing a very good i wouldn't call it perfect but a very very good left point and they're at about year three or four i was like i really don't want to go there it's just like i knew every single section and it wasn't challenging enough and i i can't even believe i'm saying this but yeah it's like i needed I've heard Kelly Slater say this before, like some of the boat trips he would go on in Indonesia. Yeah. He's been there so many times where he's like, man, some of these waves I'm just kind of bored with. I know him too well. Like it's just, yeah, it's just, it's riding the bunny hill at a certain point. In yeah, time. exactly. Yeah. And I never even imagined I'd be able to say that. Interesting. Yeah. So, so if you're bored with that wave, cause the waves aren't wildly different, right? I know, I know they do vary significantly, but at the end of the day, a wave, you either go left or right and it'll be a hollow or maybe a little smushy. But you've probably served every every type of wave there is, right? More or less, to a certain extent. But, but you have sizes, size variables that change right. things radically. Okay. Um, left, right, slabs, mushy waves, the general vocabulary, vernacular that's used. Yes, you could generally say most waves are kind of the same. You probably surfed them all. Yeah. But within the vicinity that I was able to surf, I would say there was always there was one to two waves that I was like always passionate about trying to accomplish a little bit more on okay. do something different on so you like them because you're able to push yourself on exactly okay. it, it, yeah the the wave itself was either challenging me because it was becoming more dangerous due to the size okay. or it was challenging me with uh, i was attempting maneuver that i wasn't able to really nail or perfect backside 360 twisty flip and grab uh that one yeah, was that's something that's one. challenged me for quite <laughs> quite a long time 
Uh, but yeah, yeah, the spin moves because I'm you know six feet, not that flexible, have always really eluded me. Okay. So there's a few waves that I could consistently try to boost on. Unfortunately, with the wind blowing the way it does, it's not ideal because uh, we're not attached to our boards. So you don't really want offshore conditions when you're trying to do aerial maneuvers. Okay. Uh, you want it more lightly onshore so it holds the board against your feet as you uh, blow through the back. Never thought about that. Okay. Yeah. When, you're, when it's offshore, it blows the board away from yeah. you. <laughs> so there's <laughs> this kid, though, who's a wizard, and he could spin quick enough to where he would put the board – into the wind fast enough to catch and stick to his feet as he was doing a spin. Nice. So, um, yeah, but home base, Nicaragua, I would say, or something similar. I'm thinking there's, you know, the West coast of Africa has some options that are very intriguing to me. Um, the Atlantic consistency, I'm not very familiar with. I just know like East coast of America and how the hurricane swells work. So, Right. So, so I guess the point of bringing it back to the home base question is you don't want to have a, a particular home base. Your home base is whatever wave that you're interested in challenging yourself Place, on. wave. Yeah. I mean, for me, I guess home base in the sense traditionally of having a house, owning a house, having my stuff there, yeah. um, being able to come home to that house whenever I want is absolutely not interesting to me at all. Yeah. My dream is to be able to live in Airbnbs around the world, rent all the time have the cash flow to do that without completely destroying my budget. Um, Ubering everywhere. Taxis would be fine. Renting cars is fine. The ownership of things like that, that demand a certain amount of responsibility, I guess, are not interesting to me. Yeah. Interesting. So, but it sounds like you're a little different. You, you kind of want to have something more like that. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind having the, the home base come back to, you know, um, in Cali or New Mexico in an RV. Oh, interesting. Right. But that, that comes back to the point is you got an RV, then you got insurance payments, you got all the stuff that comes along with it and what comes along with that. Like what happens if your transmission goes out, you got to have the funds to take care of it. Right. That sort of thing. Um, but I do fantasize about that doing like an icon pass trip, just going to all the 36 icon resorts doing that sort of thing. No, I, I mean, I feel you on that. Like yeah. if I were to have something, I'd have definitely something like that. Um, and have them on multiple continents that I could just store. Yeah. The other day, like, I'm not, I don't, I don't necessarily want kids. If you don't ever want to have kids then you don't need those roots, mm-hmm. right? Like you do have that freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, I could just pick up, sell everything and go bail out, but bring this back around to the entrepreneur question. I, th- I do want to, I like to, I like to, to check off boxes, right? Like I did the ski thing, checked off that box. I did the surf thing, check the box. Um, I do lots of stuff to the point of being strongly mediocre at it and get the box checked, understand the experience and then bail out. And I don't want to do that with, with the business to get the business point where it's like, at least in the business world, considered a mediocre success, not necessarily bail out, but at least bail out 50% of the time. Yeah. Fair enough. I feel you like I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm starting to realize what drives me, what motivates me and, um, the challenging aspect of things right. to the point of, I think I might be able to accomplish it, <laughs> yeah. keeps me motivated. And people ask me all the time, well, what, what happens when you get sick of traveling? Because I think they're right. I probably will at right. some point. Like I will want to have more of a stationary place. Um, what are you going to do then? And for me, it's languages. Like I'm not skilled at languages. It doesn't come naturally to me. So I know that'll be a multiple year endeavor. Yeah. You know, putting myself down someplace. For me, it'll be probably Spanish first because even the 10 years in Nicaragua, my Spanish is atrocious. Yeah. Really nailing and acing that language. Is that, is that because most people in Nicaragua speak enough English that you never were forced to? Because I've traveled a bunch of places. There's literally only one time I've traveled somewhere and somebody didn't have enough basic English to communicate, to right. get by. It's uh, 
I will always look for that person who speaks enough English and not challenge myself. Right. Uh, the 10 years I spent there, I even though I practiced, I'm not a huge uh, extrovert in any way. I'm very introverted and don't have a lot of things to say in general. That's why this podcast is good for me. I can like have my little burst of something to say and then I can go for a long time without saying anything. Mm-hmm. Point being is that you know when you try to learn a language, you have to put yourself out there. You have to talk to people. Yeah. And um, in the little village I lived in, I just chose not to really i had a few locals that i was able to engage with at the level yeah that was (laughs) the level that i plateaued at and never felt uh comfortable or or tried hard enough to get past it um and then i had obviously my my partners who are all gringos from america and so our conversations were in english all day every day yeah most of your visitors were english speaking exactly yeah so i think it's going to take a lot of effort and I equate it to the same amount of effort I'm putting into this entrepreneurial endeavor of online business. Mm-hmm. You know, sitting, you know, four to six to eight hours a day and just doing it, you know, putting myself out there, which the language thing and just even conversational thing is always a little uncomfortable for me, you know? Yep. If I'm buzzed, I can definitely let it flow Shut and up. just let it rip. It was kind of cool the other day, I got a, um, a Facebook message from a friend in Gigante, Nicaragua. Just a local fisherman I've known for since 2005, the sweetest man. And he, he sends me little voice messages. And like me being able to respond in Spanish makes me feel really good about myself, even though it's still pretty rudimentary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know he gets it. And yeah, so I think for me, languages, even though I'm not dying to know what people are saying, I would like to be able to communicate and know what they're saying. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think we got it pretty good being English speakers. As I mentioned, like I've been in outskirts of mongolia and people spoke enough english to to get by you mm-hmm. know so it's it's kind of lazy on our part that you run into europeans and they speak like four languages like it's no big deal and i almost, I almost feel bad that oh yeah just english that's you know it's enough right. totally remind me what you're doing in mongolia uh just traveling okay yeah uh, like the trans-siberian or was it uh on the border of china um so went out and did a it was part of a longer trip and i went to mongolia and just did a motorcycle little motorcycle adventure so got some half-assed chinese i think they're called dragon motorcycles like little 250 cc mm-hmm. and then just uh, did a tour around some of the lakes and camped with some year people and shit my pants a couple times it was a great time with a guide or did you do solo just yeah i went with my girlfriend at the time and you just bought motorcycles or rented them i rented them in mongolia in mongolia in ulaanbaatar yep what year was that uh 2015 wow that's yeah. great dude it was a good time was it, was it? Good time yeah um, what's crazy about Ulaanbaatar, like you, you don't really understand other places when you travel, but a third of the vehicles in Ulaanbaatar are Priuses. Like you'd be a stoplight and it's kind of the only big city there, right? You'd be at a stoplight and there'd be really like nine Priuses in a row. And it was just the weirdest thing that you go to Mongolia and I don't know who the marketing person was for Toyota. They just crushed it, but a lot of karaoke joints and Priuses literally everywhere. Just the point it was like, it was almost surreal that there were so many Priuses out there. Well, I was there in um, 2003, yeah. and it was all Russian vehicles, the old Russian vehicles. Like, there weren't any modern cars. Yeah. And trying to cross the street, which is like the six-lane highways next to the mall, that yep. big square mall. Like, dude, that was so heavy, trying to run across that street. Yeah. Like, I sat for 30, 40 minutes a few times because they're not stopping for you, dude. <laughs> yeah. No. How was it? Because uh, we had – That's um, funny, the transition just in 12 years. Yeah, I read an article, like, I want to say 10 years ago that they had, like, their first uh, – Louis Vuitton or Gucci in that mall yeah. in the center that was moving in. I was like, who the fuck is going to be, can afford that there? You yeah. know? But apparently there's, 
Yeah, this is funny. So I was, I was camping with one of the one of the yurt farmer guys. He's got a herd of uh, what did he have? Uh, um, of yeah, he had, he had cattle. Let's see, he had cattle or sheep or whatever. But we were doing the math. I was like, "How much do you sell each cow for?" And he, he said some figure. And then I'm like, "How many cows do you have?" And I'm doing the math. And I'm like, this guy had seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of product hmm. that he would just you know sell. So it was the situation where he's like living in a yurt. And just always his rancher, and he's got a very super basic lifestyle. Um, flip phone. <laughs> um, and then suddenly you realize, like, oh, this dude's basically a millionaire. He can just sell his stock and then, you know, peace out. So it's it's one of those things where you look at it like, this guy's poor, but in reality, he's way richer than I'll ever be. Hmm. So it is interesting. What are the chances? Sorry to change something. What are the chances that you went to the uh, amusement park in Mongolia? The indoor one? No, outdoor. Had like a roller coaster and everything? No, I don't think that was there. Maybe it was. I don't know. Yeah, okay. Sorry. We got, um, yeah, well, my experience was a little bit different than yours, I think, only because we were traveling, um, me and my buddy, and trying to do it on the cheap. And um, we got off the train and we didn't have a place to stay. We weren't going to pay for a place to stay. And, right. like, um, Tell me you were in summer. Yeah, we were, okay. actually. <laughs> That's a good point. And uh, everything got real heavy real quick when we kind of set up camp in a park in Ulaanbaatar. Yeah. And uh, we just like, fuck this. We went out into the, the hills outside. We just hiked. We, hiked. We, we lived for like three or four days out there just kind of wow. looking into the city, getting the courage to kind of go back in. And then a friend we had met on the train invited us to stay with her. We stayed with her for a month. Wow. So, I mean, Mongolian people are super kind and cool. What my yeah. friend and I had subjected ourselves to allowed for certain things to happen and occur that most people wouldn't probably have happen and occur. However, it leads to my question with you and your girlfriend riding motorbikes around solo. Mm-hmm. I had um, Donna Cuthbert and her husband decided that they were going to ride horses across Mongolia. Okay. So they went to the neighboring country. I think it's Kazakhstan maybe or Tajikistan, one of the two. Mm-hmm. They bought horses. They trained them. And then they rode horses across Mongolia together. And having been to Mongolia, I'm always inquisitive about people's experiences based on mine. Was As I kind of mentioned for a minute, like it was unique because yeah. I was subjecting myself to some – unique situations and uh but they articulate the same thing like the the people from i think i'm sorry kazakhstan Tajikistan, my geography is terrible like were very different even though they're on the border yeah from the mongolians they said once they actually got into mongolia and then like in the mongolian like territory nomadic people like the vibe fully changed um she had taught herself um is it mongolian what do they speak the, the, native, <laughs> the language. <laughs> yeah. So she understood when these nomadic people came up and they were saying like how we're, they're going to rob them. And like every step of the way, there was like imposing threats of some kind. Like we're going to rape you. We're going to do this to you. Like da, 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 da. Yeah. Where he's at one point chasing somebody away from them. Like they've had, they had two horses stolen. They had like every step of the way. They said it was gnarly. Jeez. Even though they loved it, they wouldn't trade it for the world. They just said the whole vibe was a lot different and you can trace it back if you want to go there to like Genghis Khan Genghis Khan like he was a warrior a lot of his descendants are still alive their blood still lives in the veins of these people and like they're conquerors they're warriors they're down to scrap so my question to you is with you and your girlfriend renting motorcycles and heading out into the the countryside did you experience anything like this um not not exactly though i will say before we left so you know, we rented these two shitty chinese motorcycles um the lady that rented them to us and th- these are beaters like these are five dollar a day type motorcycles right uh she said when you camp out there make sure you camp next to a yurt and make sure that a yurt has children because 
there is there is problems out there, and the only way you're going to be safe is if you're next to a family, and they make sure they have kids. That was like her crucial. Hey, focus. This is the you need to pay attention to this exact part right here, <laughs> and um and so yeah we did. And at one point in time, we never really felt unsafe, but I can imagine those people like because it's it is desolate out there, and if you get robbed and you're in a situation like that. I mean, we could go for an hour without seeing another person on a motorcycle on a road, right? So I can't imagine if you have to walk somewhere, or somebody steals your horses, et cetera. Like that, that's super sketchy. Yeah, the um, advice she gave you is interesting because I think a lot of people can learn from that, um, which is I think something you start to learn as you get on the road and these little nuances of travel. I mean, I think a lot of females have a, a more – a bit a better sense of how to stay safe and secure than males yeah especially in america or canada or europe for example um yeah. because they've always had to take precautions um so intuitively i think like they know like oh family children like let's stay by them you right. know and those are little tricks that you pick up on the way that i think you can carry in any culture yeah um that say you're in africa like usually people with children have that protective sense over over their children yeah. that if you're a wayward traveler in a situation that is undesirable for you then they're going to be like hey why don't you come on in here yeah. and hang out until it's cool so you don't have to be subjected to the potential violence that i think might occur if you if you continue on yeah generally people that raise families are are people that you can trust more so than a lone single guy with a bottle of whiskey in his hand. <laughs> totally. Yeah. The alcoholism in Mongolia is pretty yes, gnarly. That's, that's one thing you brought up as well. Like there are alcoholics out there that will go full blown on you. So mm-hmm. stay next to a family because those people are, you know, protective. Like you mentioned. Yeah. Totally. Exactly. I don't know why and they're I mean, just generally nice people. Like dude, people with kids are generally nice. Totally. I mean, and people in general in Mongolia are extremely nice. Yeah. And I always feel bad because I jump on these little tangents of like these crazy experiences that I had. Cause I, it's, it was kind of wild and it was kind of like, a badge of honor that you wear like, Oh, this was the craziest thing that ever happened to me. And you'd like to tell these stories, but it doesn't always put the culture in the right light because like, I always try to follow up with like, Hey, you know, I had a family take us in, in Ulaanbaatar with, they let us live with them for one month. You know, they fed us. They were just the most accommodating, beautiful people. They introduced us to all their family, which was huge. We got to go spend a night out in the countryside. Their friends would pick us up and take us to. And now that you mention at the uh, amusement park, I might have driven past it with this one family that took us out. We went out to a, a cultural like yurt area that they wanted to show us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't remember going on rides, but there always is more of an abundance of friendly, amazing people that I find myself surrounded by with these like singularity sort of like moments of like chaos and craziness that as a traveler doing what I was doing, I felt very proud of to get through, I guess, which is why I always highlight it. Yeah. But sometimes it's very unfair to the culture because they're they're not all like that. It just it's, takes one one bad apple to ruin it for the rest of them. You know? <laughs> and that that's a real yeah that's real. I mean yeah. even in, within the restaurant business, you know, it takes you know one person give you a bad review and just it takes one cockroach in your salad. <laughs> totally. Put it on Yelp, you know. <laughs> totally. So I mean yeah, it travels, dude. So Mongolia, like where else? China. Um, yes, yeah, so I did Mongolia, China, South 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 Korea. Um, all with the same girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah, uh, India, Sri Lanka, basically just that whole Genghis Khan area. For one year? Uh, five months. Okay. Yeah. Motivated by her primarily or you or mutually? Uh, it, was, it was a combination. Um, I wanted to go out and see a lot of the, the Asian things. You know, when you travel somebody, you need to have the same travel style. 
and we broke up right after the trip. <laughs> travel style, huge. Yeah. Travel style, right? Like, for example, Sri Lanka, I'm trying to think of the name of the surf, surf break, but I just was like, all right, let's park it here. Let's hang out for a little while. And she's like, let's go find a new hostel tomorrow. Let's go find a new hostel tomorrow. I'm like, you spend literally all of your time in the actual act of traveling, which makes that you miss a lot of things. Cause until you really sit down in an area for a week minimum, you don't, you don't understand it. You don't get to know it. You don't see the same people. You don't have a chance to really get the vibe of the place. Whereas if you're always like, let's go to a new hostel tomorrow, let's get on the train and go to a new place tomorrow. Right. So she was very much in the act of traveling, see everything, just whatever the lonely planet tells you to go do where I'm like, Hey, there's a surf break. Let's park it. Or, um, I'm trying to think of another example. Um, <clears throat> but I think, I think it was, I want to, I wanted to go to 10 places and she wanted to go to a hundred places. So we need a travel style. Like you ever read the thing? Like you should never be in a relationship until you traveled with somebody. Yeah. Or never get married. So <clears throat> probably good advice. Dodge a bullet. <laughs> My dad always said, uh, maybe this is generational, but never marry somebody that you've never taken skiing. Yeah. That was his saying. Never marry somebody that doesn't <laughs> ski. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, the travel partner aspect is interesting to me because that's what I learned on my trip around the world when I did Mongolia, China, Russia, all these things with my best friend. And the only thing that made it work for as long as it did was our travel style and the agreement right. we had. Travel as long as we can on as little as money as possible. Yeah. And that was it. And we both agreed to it. It wasn't a shan- shake, sh- handshake agreement, but it was like as we went around and meeting these other couples or you know people traveling – it was dissolving because one person had a different budget, number one. Yeah. The other person had a different idea of what they wanted to accomplish yeah. and see. And you could just see everything starting to unspool as people moved together, even though they started as a couple or as best friends who had this yeah. like image of what it was going to be like. And then when they started going, it wasn't like that at all. And we had our hardships. I mean, I know I pissed him off a lot because he's an adventurous, adventurous dude yeah. to the point that I was like, at some points, I'm just putting the brakes on like, dude, like, I really don't want to do that. He right. wanted, like, we were like outside when we were camping outside of Ulaanbaatar in the hills. Yeah. He looked at a map. He's like, dude, it looks like there's a, a little village about 40 miles that way, like through the fucking hills. Yeah. Like with nothing. And this, is, this is pre-GPS too, right? Yeah. We're just looking on the map on yes. like our book. <laughs> and I was sketchy. like, I really don't feel comfortable doing that. He's like, come on, dude. Like, let's just go for yeah, it. Let's just go die in the... He's like, we, had enough, we got enough water and food to survive. He's like, and we had this rule of three, you know, yeah. three minutes without air, you can survive for three days without water, three... A week Those without a shitty food. three days, <laughs> right? It's a shitty three days. I mean, this was just a, such a weird mentality in which we were traveling with, but yeah. like he would, he would have done it like 100%. And I, if I, we, I don't know, would we have survived? Probably. And would have been a great story. I would have loved to tell you that we made it. Yeah. But like those moments, I think he was upset with me because I wasn't as like gung ho as he was. Yeah. That, I'm, I mean, that would have been sketchy. But the flip side of that is, this is, who's I talking about? I was talking about locals in Mongolia is basically like you're never, not in sight of a yurt, like because in Mongolia you can see for a very long time, for a very long distance, both places. It's like, oh, just go to that yurt over there, and that yurt over there is six miles away. So you're never not like alone, but you're always alone. Totally. So you guys might have died. Good choice not to go. I mean, maybe, maybe not, but that's just it. You, you got to risk it. I mean, same with entrepreneurship. Like you, you, you take it to the threshold, and you go ten percent farther, fifty percent farther. And if that's to be successful, I think that's some cases what you have to do. You know. 
Yeah, but there's a difference between risking it and dying in the wilderness of Mongolia. Fair enough. Calculated right? risk. Calculated risk. Calculated yeah. risk. I can always sure. go be a truck driver, right? So like if sure. this doesn't work out, I could be a truck driver. If you're out in the middle of Mongolia and you're like, oh, I decided I want some water. Guess what? There's not a lot of streams, you know? <laughs> Did you hear um, about the truck drivers who would fall asleep at the wheel going through the Gobi Desert? No. Because the Gobi Desert isn't all sand, right? It's, yeah. it's A lot of it's plains. Yeah. Um, so truck drivers, I was told by my local uh, housemate guide who took us out there, uh, that they would fall asleep for two to four hours at times, yeah. and then they'd have trouble finding the the road because they would just conti- they would just veer right. off, and you're not going to hit it. There's nothing out there; it's just rolling hills yeah. that are subtle rolls. Like you can't even hit anything. There's no potholes either. Yeah. And she said sometimes truckers would get lost for like ten hours trying to find the road because they didn't know which way they had veered off. <laughs> I, I believe that. I took the train from Alambantur to Beijing, and it's a long train ride, and. uh you could look out the window and then like read a, read three chapters of a book and look out the window and you're like, it's the exact same, uh, landscape, like nothing different at all. Yeah. I took the train to the border and I took a bus from the border of Mongolia to Beijing. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. You know, what's crazy about that is the train track widths are different in Mongolia than they are in China. So it was like two o'clock in the morning. We stopped. They changed all the wheels on the trains. It was like a two hour process. And then off to China. Wow. Yeah, they have different widths, different widths on the tracks. I, those are the nuances that I love that you only experience if you're willing to go that route. Yeah. You know, with uh, not even technology, but like with a little bit bigger budget and you're flying between Ulaanbaatar and Beijing, like you that miss. distance, like I'll, I will always opt for a 10-hour bus ride yeah. over a two-hour flight. Yeah. Like 10 hours is my threshold. I, you know, 12 to 15, I start getting a little bit like, I don't want to be on this anymore, but I can do 10 hours pretty comfortably. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Like just seeing the distance that I've gone and just this little sights, even though sometimes it's a weird highway, it's like, I'd rather do that. Yeah. You see so much more and people getting on off the bus. I love, I love, I'm going to call them third world buses. I'm not sure if that's PC, but with the blaring chicken music, buses. chicken buses. Yeah. With the blaring music and yeah. you know, the super violent in. films, not a lot of on the AC sometimes. <laughs> Have you noticed that? I've never seen a violent film. Oh it's my always God, like the Central American, music. uh, buses this is pretty standard for if you can afford like an air-conditioned bus that's not a chicken bus um which is whatever 10 bucks yeah it's a bit it's a big amount for a person on a budget but the films were always horrifically violent really like there's this one that stands out it's called like cannibal holocaust which i (laughs) i looked it up and they say they actually killed animals to make the film it was made back in the day before PETA got involved yeah when you actually could make good films (laughs) And just the amount of children on the bus watching this was like it's terrifying, dude. Yeah, uh, but yeah, some of the music they blast the whole time, it's like bumping people on and off, and just, yeah. yeah, the ACs sometimes are way too cold, especially yeah. in Asia. Like the Southeast Asia buses are just freezing; you have to have yeah. a snowsuit on. I like that though. Yeah, you see so much more. I like the train rides as well because train you get a little more, you get a little more space, right? True, depending on what class you're in. Even even like the. Because I've been in trains in India that were like six dollar tickets for a four hour ride, and you still have, you still have more space than a bus. You know, it's a little smellier, but you know. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I did second class sleeper all through India. Which yeah. I mean, we got a little plank, like which during the daytime was crammed with everybody, and then everyone would go to their different planks, and you, you roll yeah. out your mat and sleep like that. Yeah, appreciated that experience. So I'd I'd do that again for sure. Yeah, it was uh, well worth it. They had some weird weird little like scams going on on those trains yeah i don't necessarily want to go into it but there was some like weird sort of like indian men are highly restricted in their like sexual behaviors yeah um yet they're highly highly 
obviously sexually sort of arouse. If you go to any internet cafe, this is back in the day, most people probably have phones now. You could have pulled up the last 10 pages looked at. It was all porn. Yeah. But teach their own, not to judge. Yeah. No, that, that, that's interesting. I was in Myanmar, and uh, some place like Lonely Planet is like, if you're brave, go check this place out. And we went up there and, and sat down. And it was like kind of restaurant-y or whatever on the rooftop of you know just downtown building or whatever. We couldn't figure out what was going on. But um, there was like a display of women. Like the women would come out and like dance in a line. There was like 10 or 15 of them. And then every now and then a guy would take a, a lay and then go and like put it around one of the girls. And then she'd disappear, and then he'd disappear in a different direction. And then a little bit later, they both pop back out. And it wasn't until we talked to a, a door person at the building next door. It's like, oh, yeah, prostitutes. It's like, of course. Mm. <laughs> like, oh. Is this in Yangon? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was, just, it was just one of those things like we just went to a hooker uh, display and didn't even know where we were. Right. Yeah. Happens all the time, dude. <laughs> just hookers everywhere, man. <laughs> I mean, even in Newport Beach, I was at a karaoke bar the other day, and like, there's all these Japanese uh, women that I'm pretty sure were prostitutes. Yeah. What was the karaoke bar? What's the address? And uh, what time did <laughs> the prostitutes close by here, dude. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Even 333 Newport Beach, somebody's like, oh, the hooker bar. And I was like, oh, oh. Because I've been there before, but I, I just, I like, I don't have hooker dar, I guess. Yeah, hooker dar. Yeah, like hooker dar or prostitute. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> um, and then you think back about it, you're like, oh, yeah, the, yeah there's definitely hookers there. Interesting. Mm. You know, you don't, you don't think about it. Um, but yeah, it turns out hookers are everywhere. Yeah, that yeah. does turn out even to on be uh, true. second class Indian trains, you know. Yeah, yeah, that was a bizarre one. Yeah, um, Myanmar, interesting. How was your experience there? Um, it was, it was, it was interesting. Did you do the whole twenty eight days? No, no, no. It was a, it was a Thanksgiving week long, week long trip. Um, it was interesting. Like, you always see like the like the National Geographic style videos or whatever. So it was the first time I felt like a celebrity. Um, we because I'm I'm tall and white or whatever right and uh so we were in yangon and i was like at a whim i was like hey let's buy a ticket get on the boat and just go across the river and see where we end up right fucking get off the lonely planet for a minute and we did and we just on the other side of the river there was just like a small village and we rented a uh a bicycle and uh just little kids were like whoa who is this person like we've never seen this kind of person before they're like running along grabbing and holding hands and that sort of thing so it was the first like proper celebrity uh experience it was kind of interesting yeah. yeah, I know exactly where you crossed the river. I was down there contemplating doing the same thing. I didn't yeah. do it. But um, Yangon was interesting uh, based on just the history. Orwell wrote a lot about that back mm-hmm. in the day. I mean, the British colony, it was a British colony for a long time. A lot of interesting yeah. things were going on there. And I, I was, the whole 28 days I was there, I was floored by how easy it was to get around yeah. and how friendly everybody was. Because again, the National Geographic images made me think of India yeah. and it looked so similar. So I automatically assumed it'd be as chaotic and hectic and hard to get around. Yeah. And just the experience I had in India was anxiety driven, yeah. you know, for the it's most a part. noisy, noisy, hectic place. Yeah. And I had the exact opposite experience in Myanmar. Yeah. So my brain the whole time was just like, this doesn't add up. This doesn't make sense. Walking through a market where I was the only white person, the only Westerner, yeah. and not one person came up and hassled me. Really? Not one. They, some would acknowledge and some would smile. Yeah. I mean, everyone was fine and friendly, but they just seemed not interested or they hadn't really got the fact that I probably had money that they could get from me. I was going to say, what, what year were you there? <clears throat> I was there in January. Okay. okay. So recently. Then. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Interesting. Did you, did you make it up to, um, what's the lake? 
It's the bigger lake. Oh, there. no, I didn't make it up I there. Okay. No. Okay. Yeah, I heard that was nice. Did you do the walk between all the villages? Yeah, I did a bicycle ride. Oh, you do the bicycle? I like, I like bicycles. I do, too. They're yeah. great. I great think that's a great way to see the world. Yeah. Donna Cuthbert, uh, the Mongolian a couple that rode across Mongolia, like yeah. they weren't Mongolian. They're Australian. Um, her husband and her were riding from Los Angeles to Patagonia when I met them. And that was after. So they did the Mongolian horseback ride. Yeah. They flew to L.A., bought bicycles, cycled to Patagonia, mm. made their way back up to Panama, I believe, and sailed back to Australia. <laughs> they were gone for like three or four years. Wow. Yeah, That's, cycling, though, the point is that I think it's a great way to see the world. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's slow. You can hear. You can smell. You can see. Um, but it's much faster than walking. Totally. Right? Totally. So, um, what's the, what's the, what's the other city in, uh, Myanmar? It's got a Mandalay. Old, yeah. Mandalay. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You think Mandalay Bay is being this like spectacular, amazing <laughs> place. And you're like, no, it's just kind of a tiny little shitty city. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. I was not enthusiastic about Mandalay. The river was kind of interesting going down yeah. the river in Mandalay and kind of, I, I hung out with a few locals down there and that was kind of cool. Nice. Did you see all the pagodas? Yeah, of course. The, uh, in that area? No, I didn't go up to the one on top of the hill. Yeah, what's what's the name of the uh, starts the B, the one in, in Yangon, the biggest one in the world? No, not the biggest one in the world. Um, fuck, it's where they do the hot air balloon rides above it all. Oh yeah, that's in Bagan. Bagan, thank you. Yeah, Bagan. Yeah. Did you make it to Bagan? Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting, interesting. Very, very cool. So for the listeners who don't know what it is, people just built these brick uh, pagodas, are kind of like small mini brick pyramids, and there's thousands of them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's. I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, there's another one um, that I took a bus to, which is up more into the area where there's the civil unrest. You know, like all yeah, the it's, it's got your shit going on right there. Well, that's just it. Like I went up there not to check it out. I was actually going up to look at the coast and and kind of search for waves. Yeah, but um, um, I'll have to put it in the show notes. But it's like the the bagan of the past, okay. if you will. They say the Buddha came there at one point when he was alive to give his sermons, and um, it was so cool, so small, so unique, but I bumped into uh, some UN representatives that were up there. They have to come once a month to make sure that the, the tribes aren't feuding. Yeah. And the gist of it they gave me, it was, I guess, comparable to like what we perceive as like you know the um, Catholics versus Protestants in Northern Ireland feuding. Mm-hmm. So as an American, I was always in the assumption that they hate each other because they had different religions, right? As you dig a little deeper, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm under the impression it's more because it's British against Irish, and like fuck you, get off our island, you know. Yeah. And it's not about religion per se, even though it maybe has evolved over time into aspects of religion. Yeah. Same with the Buddhists, which is ironic. The Buddhists are starting like trying to eradicate Muslims off of the, yeah. you know, Myanmar kind It was more they were describing that this is old bad blood between tribes. That has just never really died down, mm-hmm. and it just so happens that the majority is Buddhist, and then the minority is Muslim, and it just more more of these tribes dislike the Muslim tribes. Like, and it's yeah. not necessarily all about religion. I, I think it all comes down to resources, okay. right? That's mm-hmm. that's kind of my theory on it. Like, it's not that that they have a problem with each other. It's that there's a limited, there's a finite number of resources. And you're going to join up a tribe, right? Like you're going to pick your tribe. In this case, that would be our tribe is Buddhist. Your tribe is Muslim. It's not about the religion. It's about there's a number of resources. And I'm just going to join up with the people that have some sort of um, unity or flag or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's who I'm going to join up with. That's my tribe. And we're going to fight the other tribes. And, it's universal. Yeah. I mean, you got Crips. You got Bloods. You got 
Yeah, like you look at the Middle East between the Sunnis and the Shiites, like almost identical religions. I mean, they're actually basically the same religion. They just had a fight over who succeeded after um, so like the succession of Muhammad. And one side said, oh, it's his kid. And the other side said, no, elect a leader. And that's the only difference. The start of the whole thing. And it really just comes down to same religion, but we're going to fight you because we need your farming land. We need your oil. We need your river water. Right. That's what it all comes down to. Yeah, and I think with the uh, the Myanmar example, where it does start to differ is that when the government starts to support one side right. and kind of just say like, yeah, go ahead and we'll, we'll either fund you with guns or whatever, which from the people I was speaking to, it seems like there is evidence that the government was fully in support of these Muslims being eradicated from yeah. the country. Right, because then now the government's got a bunch of loyal subjects mm-hmm. that appreciate the eradication and the help and this and that, and um, and the government's got more land or what you know, like it just. I think it comes out of resources. No, you're it's right. The government picks a side. Yeah, it was such a wonderful country. I'd love to go back. I mean, I, they only gave me 28 days for my visa. It's, I think it's pretty easy to renew, but I was off to Vietnam, and but yeah, I mean that country is about to explode with tourism. Yeah. I mean, it already is. Like, there's tons. There's people there. Yeah. Relatively speaking, in Thailand and the neighboring countries, it's. I mean, there's nobody there, but. There's always somebody to bump into on the road, and um, yeah, incredible coastline. I want to kind of explore. Yeah. Yeah. Find a Bangladesh. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. Very quick, very clever. You had a lot of jokes there now when we were drinking. I just uh, totally went over my head. That's <laughs> <no. laughs> yeah, probably probably weren't funny, but no, it's good. Yeah. Dude. You're quick witted for sure. Um, so yeah, going back to religion real quick. Growing yeah. up Mormon, yeah, you know, in in New Mexico, big family. Yeah. Don't really desire kids or at this moment. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. It's something that I I consider, but I'm not, it's not a driving factor in my life. Right. Right. Like I'm not out to have a kid. Okay. If I accidentally impregnate somebody and they fight me on the abortion then you know, perhaps. Okay. Fair (laughs) enough. Fair enough. Um, we spoke a funny, a little side note the other night about, um, you know, Levi loving and letting it soak, which she said were just (laughs) not really that true. And just kind of, Maybe so and so does it, but it's not like a a commonplace thing to participate in within the the Mormon youth, which is Levi Levin is you know rubbing your fucking genitals together yep. with your jeans on, and then the other one is just like whoop, but accidentally sit in or slipped in, so we can't actually have sex. Let's uh, just let it sit there. And yeah, let it soak. Just, just let it soak. Like it's not actually <laughs> sex if you're not bringing it in and out. I guess on a, on some sort of rhythmic basis. Yeah, just just stick it in there, let it soak. I'm. I'm Either that doesn't happen or it's just a trick to be like, oh, we're not actually having sex. We're just soaking. Uh, oh, I got the shivers. I'm moving a little bit now. <laughs> but that's not something you witnessed or participated in. I am not a soaker. You're not a soaker. No, I'm not a soaker. <laughs> <laughs> I love learning these things. I mean, that's why I travel too. It's just you spend enough time in a place and you observe certain things. You find somebody who speaks enough English and they describe like what's going on, why it's going on, the culture behind it, yeah. whether it's like their – social games they play or little nuances between um yeah the cultural nuances of yeah. uh, just learning these things about how people live and like and it, it's not you can't generalize a lot of times between a whole country and say like everyone does it's like you could be in a small village where like in higante nicaragua like they had aspects of their language that nobody knew outside mm-hmm. of you know 500 people so I like that. I mean, that's kind of my thing, I guess, when I really boil it down to why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. Like, I love sitting on the side of a road, wherever it may be, with a beer and maybe a friend. That'd be awesome if there's a friend involved. And just watching the people go by yeah. and just seeing what they do, how they interact. And I think that's so cool and beautiful. Yeah, it's interesting <clears throat> how many different ways there are to, to live life, you know? 
Yeah, I interviewed today um, Leon Logothetis from the Kindness Diaries. Kindness Diaries, and you know, watching his show, season two right now, the people that take him in, mm-hmm. and maybe it's because it's a show and he edits it and he chooses the people who've taken him to be appearing to be the poorest people you've ever seen. Yeah. But like, that's what it is. It's like, these are the poorest people he's encountering are like, yeah, you can totally sleep in my house. Like I'll totally feed you. Like I only have tamales. Like he was in Mexico. Like I only have tamales. I'm sorry. But it's just so fascinating. Like how kind the world is. And it's coming from so many people who really have nothing to really share in the sense of like monetary, food like they're they're really sacrificing a huge portion of what they're going to consume calorie wise and a space in their house to let you stay which i just i found personally like going back to mongolian experience like to stay in this dude's apartment like we were totally imposing (laughs) you know (laughs) but he was so cool and he was like the head of food for the military in mongolia so he'd bring back like these sacks of potatoes that were like half rotten. We'd sit there and we'd peel them all together and cut out the rotten bits and we'd just sit there and like make potato soup or like a million different ways to make potato. Yeah. Just so kind, dude. So many nice people in this world. Yeah. I mean, helpful. Like everyone's helpful. Yeah. And then there's that one weird random asshole that ruins it for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it just takes, it just takes one, 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 one douchebag. Totally. Within your stand-up stuff, like what, what kind of stuff are you incorporating into it? Like, are you ta- are you drawing upon travel stuff or? No, I I, I don't do that much stand-up anymore. And okay. The, and the reason for that is is I just got burnt out. Like, so I never made it to the level where my open mic time was quality time. And so you have to go to open mics. Like, even the the professionals still go to open mics where they to work out stuff. Because what's funny is what you think is funny other people won't find funny or maybe you need to wait a half a second longer to say it or maybe your punchline needs to be rewarded differently or whatever right like you have to work stuff out and at the level i was at i'd go to three four open mics a week to work stuff out and you just you listen to other people and you're like this sucks there's six people in the audience i have to do this what am i doing i just didn't have the the follow-through to to bury myself the way other people the people that do that make it they really have that that passion so i got like i was saying earlier i get mediocre good at something and then i'm on to the next thing so do you think you'll ever come to that place where you just try to get really good at something um i think what i'm really good at is being mediocre at everything right <laughs> not to like not sound like that but like i'm a i'm a i'm a media well i'm a good skier but like i'm a mediocre surfer at best like um i've done a mediocre amount of travel compared to a lot of people i'm a mediocre skydiver I'm, you know um and i think that's that i want to at least experience everything as opposed to this the person that's like I'm going to focus on this one thing and be incredibly spectacular at it. Right. Cause you can get decently good at something with a fair amount of input, but to get to that next level generally takes way more than I'm willing to commit. Like that extra level of dedication to go from a six to a 10. Right. So that maybe then let's equate that to like six figures to 10 figures. Like are you going to get there? Like with your business? I mean, no, because as soon as I have six figures steadily, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be gone half the time. Okay. Right? So, yeah, so that's really it. You're cool with that. and that's, There's nothing wrong with yeah. that. I mean, I, I just listened to a podcast today with Marie Forleo, who yeah. talks about, like, she's a multi-passionate entrepreneur. Yeah. And she has her fingers on a lot of different pies and, and is tremendously successful at some things because of, for whatever reason, luck or ambition or trying hard i don't know but mm-hmm. nothing wrong with it i don't like the the saying uh you know jack of all trades master of none what is that because it's just i think it it's kind of mm, not degrading but like 
doesn't give people enough credit for the amount of things that they have gotten really good at that they could through the stroke of luck become very successful at like i think luck plays a huge part in it massive and so just because you don't sit and like um really become the like the master of something doesn't mean you're not successful which is what i feel like that saying implies oh i i I don't take that phrase that way. No, no. I, I take it as like, Hey, I'm like good at a lot of stuff, but I'm not the best at anything. I don't, I don't see it in a negative way, but as you're saying to you, sir, to use their own. No. Yeah. No, I yeah, just My mom used to always say, it, and I guess that was why I felt it was negative. Cause she was applying it to people that she uh, felt were not, not achieving their full potential. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So yeah, that's probably I see it's like, Hey, you're good at lots of stuff, but you're not the best at anything. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'd rather be good at a lot of things than really good at one thing. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Because, yeah, when you are really good at one thing and maybe not good at anything else, and then that one thing you either can't do physically anymore or it's taken away from you for whatever reason, yep. your whole identity is wrapped up in that, and then you're lost for a lot of people. Yeah. And it's hard to pivot. I mean, you see that with a lot of professional athletes. Yeah, or the Michael Phelps ads for the better, better whatever it is. Yeah. 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 Where, like, you do one thing and you bury yourself into it. Like, I was just thinking, like, what if you're, like, the world's best chess player? And then somebody, your buddies are like, hey, let's go skiing. And you're like, I cannot ski. I, I spent my whole life playing chess. You know, I'd rather be a mediocre chess player and go skiing half the time, right? Yeah. I guess those guys don't really give a fuck about skiing, though. No, exactly. Like exactly. <laughs> so that goes back to the Israel. I'm like, if you want to be the world's best chess player, great. Go do it. But I'd rather be a mediocre chess player and mediocre skier. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, you're having fun. And, mediocre and, and you can adapt to a lot of different social scenes. Yeah. And you experience so much more. Yeah. Right. Because at the end of the day, you know that Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours bit. Mm-hmm. I'd rather spend a thousand hours on ten things than ten thousand hours on one thing. Fair enough. Yeah. So with that said, then and, and the audience who's listening right now, who's interested in starting that one thing that they're going to become decent at, but maybe not, you know, the best at. What would you say to them to get started? How how could you just help them like take that first step into something that they design for themselves that they want to do? When you do when you do your first. Thing that you're going to become mediocre at. You got to pour yourself into it. Um, so I'm going to take skydiving, for example, right? So it's fairly easy to become a mediocre skydiver, but you have to spend, you could do that process over three years, but you're going to become a mediocre skydiver much quicker if you dedicate yourself for that first six months. So bury yourself into it. Like you're going to do it for the rest of your life. Like you're going to become an expert, but just get halfway and then pick the next thing and bury yourself into it. So, um, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're going to learn something like dedicate yourself to learning that. And then once you get to the point where you're happy and you're like, okay, I've now properly experienced that, then you can move on to other stuff. Totally. No, that's good advice. I think it's one of those things that if well, I think it's also one of those things that like some people have that capability where it's like they, they are capable of burying themselves into that becoming obsessive yeah. um, for that period of time. For- and then, you know, not, and then there's others who are capable of staying obsessed, yeah. you know? And so I think that's good advice for anybody yeah, wanting to start something. You do have to put in the hours to become whatever yeah. you want, to so design like, that life in the, whatever way you want. Yeah. I would bring it back to life with your language thing, right? Mm-hmm. You could, uh, what's the language? You could do Duolingo, right? You could do it for one hour a day, once a week, but you're not going to get anywhere. But mm-hmm. if you did it for an hour a day, every single day for 50 weeks, you're going to be much better off than if you'd done it over the course of, you know, however long. Totally. Right. You got to compress the learning 
uh, especially because when you're learning something like the stuff the day before compounds, if you wait three days before you get back to that same lesson, you're going to be missing, missing out. So consistently you got to do, you got to just put in the time every day, at least a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Like you got to, you got to make it passionate and, and get to the point where you are mediocre. I agree. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I think, I mean, that, that's where I'm at with my like entrepreneurial endeavors. Like I'm mediocre. <laughs> like, yeah. I put in like four to six hours, maybe eight a day, seven days a week. After five years, I'm very average. Yeah. yeah. Well, bring it back to like you've taught a lot of people to surf. If yeah. you teach, if you have one lesson a week with somebody and you do six weeks worth of lessons, right? So mm -hmm. the six total lessons, six hours of surfing, that person is not going to be nearly as good as the person that does six days in a row for one hour, right? Same amount of time, same amount of instruction. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that the, the person that does six days in a row is going to be much better off than 100%. six weeks. 100%. Yeah. So that'd be my advice. I think that's good advice for sure. Pick it and crank at it for a little bit until you get bored of it and then do the next thing. I love it, dude. Thank you for your time, my friend. Just real quick so the audience can listen to your podcast, Friday Meeting Podcast. It is the Friday Meeting. Um, you can find it on iTunes. The like the logo the icon is three people. One's ginger, one's tall with a beard, and the other is uh, it's cartoons. Sweet, dude. So they, if they want to come for some satire uh, news articles and just conversation, they can come listen to you guys every Friday. Cracking jokes and talking about the world's biggest penis. We love you, dude. Thanks for joining hey, us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome, Alistair. Thank you so much for joining us. It was really a pleasure talking to you. You are a funny dude and easy to talk to, and I look forward to many more conversations on and off the air in the future. Please, folks, check them out. Friday Meeting Podcast. It's all in good fun and something I think we all need a little bit of perspective on when the media these days is just constantly bombarding us with negativity. Please remember to subscribe. Please remember to share this episode with a friend or just Misfits and Rejects with a friend. And if you really like Misfits and Rejects and you haven't yet gotten a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt yet, please head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop. I provided a link in the show notes and you can pick out a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt. Thank you so much for listening. I think you all are so very beautiful. I look forward to see you in next week's episode. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.